1 Samuel. In the Bible, there's two books of Samuel, 1 and 2. They come one right after the other, and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to continue. Actually, we're going to kind of bring an end to our current series of teaching called Unleashing the Power of Family. When I say kind of bring it to a close, uh, that's because... Um, this is something we're never going to actually end. I mean, there's so many subjects that have to do with family life, and it is so important. God meant for, for family to be such a source of healing and wholeness and blessing to our lives. And uh, so there's going to be, we'll, we'll continue this uh, subject later on. In fact, this whole series began two years ago. We did about seven uh, messages in that series and then we took a two-year break and did some other things and now we've been back at it for including today six additional weeks but there's still other things that are on my mind and heart that I'd like to share with you out of God's word about this theme and so we'll come back to it but starting next week we're going to begin a new series uh, leading us up to Easter called the road to resurrection but today unleashing the power of family and we're going to focus in on the labor of love how to pray for your family. All of us, every one of us, have people in our immediate family. Maybe you're even sitting next to that person today. Some people in our um, uh, immediate family, people in our extended family that need prayer for uh, any number of things. Prayer for healing and of a physical condition. Prayer about some matter of the soul or heart that they're struggling with. Prayer for them because they need to know Jesus. They haven't yet come to that, uh, across that threshold from doubt into faith. Uh, prayer because of some relational issue. Every one of us have people in our family circle that need prayer. And we come today to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to read about a woman named Hannah and how she prayed for her family and how God answered that prayer. See, I always want to find uh, examples of people who pray and get their prayers answered to learn how to do, that, to, do, uh, to do that better, to do that more effectively. And so that's where we're at today. Let's begin reading at verse 8, chapter 1, 1 Samuel. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And let me just tell you who these folks are. Hannah was the mother of Samuel, the person who wrote this book, the person that is the main character of these two books, First and Second Samuel. He was a prophet. That means he spoke for God. And he was a monumental prophet. He is somebody that's a great hero to me when I read through the various characters in the Bible. Someone that just was so passionate for, for the Lord and, and uh, so determined that God's voice be heard and obeyed. And um, I just love that about, about him. Uh, he comes on the scene at a time when things were not so great with Israel. Uh, they had come through a period of time where people, God, were, God was raising up these people that we know as judges. They weren't like, you know, uh, we think of today a judge in a court of law. But they served as people who would uh, provide leadership and guidance for the people of Israel and so there's this period after the children of Israel came into their promised land where they were led by a group of men and women over a long period of time called, called the Judges. We know them as the Judges. What will follow Samuel was a period uh, of, of the kings. 
where Israel was led by the kings. But Samuel is right in that in-between point. He, and it's, the Bible says that it was at a time when God's voice was not being heard. And that doesn't mean that God wasn't speaking. It means that people weren't listening. People didn't want to listen. And uh, so Samuel comes along and uh, he cultivates a hearing heart. He starts to learn how to listen for the voice of God and then respond to it and obey it and declare it to other people. And uh, so that's this guy named Samuel. Well, Hannah is his mother and uh, her husband is Elkanah. And he comes to her and asks her why she weeps because we're going to find out that Hannah uh, is not able to bear children. She's infertile. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Let me just pause for a moment and say, you know, the culture that is, uh, these people lived within was vastly different than our own. We don't get to judge it because uh, it's what it was. But in that culture, women were not uh, highly regarded. In fact, for the most part, uh, the culture, which was such a male-dominated culture, uh, thought of women as... Um, their, their role or their place was to bear children. And Hannah is in this place where she says, I, I can't do that. And, and so what does that say about me as a person? So her, her uh, sense of self-worth, her sense of her femininity, all of this stuff is just really uh, in a, a troubling arrangement because she can't fulfill in her own mind and in the minds of the, the people of that day, she can't fulfill the one thing that um, makes her valuable to the society. Again, I'm not by any means suggesting that that has any merit at all, but that's where she was. And so she's in uh, torment of soul over this, and her husband says, um, am I not, why, are you, why are you grieving? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Have you ever asked, had somebody ask you a question that was so stupid and so insensitive that it didn't deserve an answer? Well, this is one of those, and she doesn't even answer his insensitive question. Verse 9, so, so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle of Moses, or the, the tabernacle that was erected under Moses' leadership was uh, currently housed or stationed. So it was a place where the people worshipped God. Hannah leaves a party where um, people are celebrating because it's a time every year when people have come to Shiloh to offer sacrifices and uh, they're enjoying that, that environment except she's in no mood to be eating and drinking. So she slips away to the tabernacle. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the, uh, the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord. All the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. That's kind of an odd turn of phrase. Probably you never use that with regard to your children. But what it means is that because his hair will never be cut, that will be always a symbol of his devotion to the Lord. 
Verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now, Hannah spoke in her heart, but only her lips moved. It would have been inappropriate for her to be speaking out loud in that place. Um, and uh, so she's, but she's praying. Her lips are moving, but she's not articulating. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So, he, so Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. In verse 20, So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Let's talk about what we can learn. And I think there's at least four things that we can learn from, from uh, Hannah's example about how to pray for our family. Now, she was praying for a family that didn't yet exist. She was praying for a child that was not yet conceived. Nonetheless, I think you can um, see that this is a prayer about family. And I want for you, as we make our way through this time together, to have in your mind that person or persons that came to your mind when I was talking earlier about all of us having someone in the circle of our immediate or extended family that needs prayer. Have that person in mind as we think this through. The first thing I want you to see from Hannah's example is that if you're going to pray effectively for your family, you need to get serious about it. It's, it's um, awkward to say, but I think nonetheless true, that God is serious about what you're serious about. And sometimes we have this really weird idea about what prayer is. It's like... You know, we take the shotgun approach. We load it up with what we think God wants to hear, cock the thing, and then blast toward heaven and hope we hit something. That's not prayer. I don't know what that is, but it isn't prayer, but we all do it. The other thing sometimes is we think of God as sort of a vending machine. You know, I, I put in the required amount of money, I push the right button, and I'm hoping something comes out the bottom that I, I'm looking for. But God is not a vending machine. You can't have a relationship with a vending machine. And all God is ever interested in, where it comes to me and you, is relationship. Can I say to you that prayer is never, never about what you're praying for. It's always about whom you're praying to. Always. Think about it. Does God need for you to inform him about the need? Sometimes we think of prayer as, oh, you know, God, I think you forgot about this. <laughs> no, he hasn't. Is prayer about me uh, motivating God? God, you know, I, I'm sure you know about this, but 
Maybe you don't understand how important this would be if you would do this. It's not about that. Um, is it about even wearing God down? Sometimes people think of it like, you know, the child that just keeps asking for the same thing over and over and over. And we figure that eventually God will get tired of listening to us and say, okay, right? No, it's not about that. It's not about reminding God either. Oh, yeah, I, I, I was going to get around to that. You know, No. Prayer is none of those things. So why do we pray? And why is it so important? Because of relationship. When I come to God with this stuff, it gives me a chance to, to interact with him, to, be, uh, to speak with him and him with me. To know him in a way that I can't know by just reading a Bible or, you know, singing songs or all the other things that we do in terms of our Christian life. It's about relationship. You know, um, <laughs> we, get, we get this prayer thing so twisted up. Um, and I, but I want to be clear that I don't believe that God, I don't want to sound today as though I'm, I'm, I'm saying that sometimes God, you know, uh, takes his time about answering prayer or seems, you know, to have, to be playing cat and mouse with us a little bit. I, I don't want to say that. It's not that God uh, is so interested in relationship with you that he wants to make you suffer until you have proficient or sufficient relationship with him. It's, it's not that either. I can't answer the question definitively for you today. Why to this point, God has not blessed Hannah with a son. But what I can tell you is that when she was there that day in the temple, pouring her heart out before God, God was meeting her there. There was a a relationship happening at a depth, a level that had not been before. And the result was a son was given. But that wasn't the point. The point was the relationship. Get serious if you want to see God answer prayer in any situation, but particularly for the family. The second thing I want you to see from this story about how to pray effectively for your family is to let go. Let go. She says, Lord, if, if you will give me a sign. Now, she's not bargaining with God. She's saying, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. What she's saying is, I will stop dictating the agenda here. You know, all of us, when we pray for things, we can't help it. But we have an imagine, we imaginized. We, <laughs> I just make words up, you know. Uh, we imagine how it's going to go. We think, oh, well, God will do this, and then I will do that, and it'll all work out this way, and it'll look like that, and everybody will be happy, right? We can't almost help from, keep ourselves from doing that. But it's not helpful when we're talking about the God whose ways are higher than ours, who, who knows everything that can be known, and is at work doing things far beyond the scope of anything we could um, not only imagine, but create. So when I say to God, you need to do it this way, I'm, I'm, 
It's as though I'm trying to limit, shackle him to do what I want him to do, when I want him to do it, in the way I want him to do it. And God is bigger than that. He's bigger than that. The first church that Sue and I pastored, we, we started a church down in, in uh, Pleasanton, down in the East Bay. And uh, we started in our home. We had just uh, gathered together some, some people that we had met in the, in the neighborhood. And um, they were all women. And uh, that's not a bad thing, but it's, uh, it was, we wanted to see some men come uh, to the church as well. So we started to pray that God would send us some guys. And one of the guys we started to pray for was the husband of one of these women who was not yet a believer. He didn't know the Lord, hadn't crossed that boundary from doubt into faith. And that went on for actually a couple of years as the church grew. And actually, once we started the church, we did have actually some men that came. <laughs> that was a, a great thing and answered a prayer. But her husband had not yet come to the Lord. And so for a couple of years, we prayed for him. And eventually, he, uh, he came to a men's retreat that we had. A surprise, a really, you know, he, he was a very successful businessman. He was a highly trained and, and effective athlete as well, a triathlete. And he just didn't have any sense of need for God in his life. And uh, so that he would set aside a weekend to go with a bunch of you know, Christian men off to, to uh, learn about God was a big deal. And he, so he did this. We were all shocked and surprised. And at that retreat, he gave his heart to Jesus. Now, you'd think that'd be the greatest thing in the world for his wife. But it wasn't. Because it didn't happen the way she imagined it would. <laughs> and when he came home and began, to, now he was a Christian, and, but kind of still the same guy. I mean, I think she imagined that you know, she'd, he'd have this dramatic, immediate turnaround and be the man she imagined he should be. Well, a turnaround was in process, but it wasn't happening as fast as she wanted to see it happen. And probably not in the way she wanted for it to unfold. She had this picture of what this was going to be like when God answered her prayer. Well, God had answered her prayer, but she couldn't receive it. I'm sad to tell you today, they ended up in divorce. Simply because she could not release this idea, this notion of how what she thought ought to happen. But we all do that. We all imagine God uh, doing things the way we want him to do. And when he doesn't, sometimes we get a little frustrated by that. If we're going to pray effectively, we need to be people who let go. And I don't mean in a passive way. Sometimes people pray, they just say, well, God, if it's your will, do so and so. And it's almost like, well, why bother praying then? What's that about? I'm not talking about passive um, surrender. I'm talking about active surrender. Where I come to God and I say, God, you hear my heart and you know the desire of my heart for this person. But I release to you the details, the timing, the means. I stand in faith with you, in agreement with you, that your will be done. You see what I'm saying? And that's what Hannah does here. She says, Lord, if you'll... Give me a son. I will give him to you. I release my imaginings for what his life will be like. Can you imagine a mother? You, you, you can't help but have dreams and ideas and uh, imaginings about your child. And she releases all that to the Lord. 
There was a friend of mine in, that uh, I grew up with in elementary school, middle school, all the way up through high school, a guy named Richard Belzer. He's still a friend of mine. He lives on the East Coast. And um, mostly we just connect by Facebook these days. But he was a guy who, he was very intelligent and... Um, and uh, he just gave me a really hard time about my faith. We were friends, but he just, with every chance he got, he would lay into me about how stupid it was to believe in God. And he would give me all the reasons why, you know, if you were intelligent or halfway intelligent, you wouldn't believe in God. But I prayed for him, and I prayed for him, and I started to imagine, you know, one day I would say to him, you know, Richard, you need Jesus. And he would say, oh, yes, I do. And he'd get on his knees. And I'd put my arm around him and I'd pray for him and lead him to Jesus. And, you know, I had this image in my mind. Never happened. And I finally just got to the place where I said, God, you know, I, I care about Richard. And I know you want him to know you and to come to faith. But I just surrender this to you. I just give this up. And in fact, I, honestly, I stopped praying. Not because I didn't care anymore, but because I, I had been trying to impose my agenda on God so much that I just needed to back off completely. I stopped praying. About a year later, I came home from church and found Richard on my, on my uh, porch at home. And he said to me, he said, Randy, you'll never believe what happened to me. I gave my heart to Christ today. And then he began to tell me this story I could not have scripted in a million years. God knows how to do this stuff. And when I insist he do it my way, all I'm doing is frustrating the process. We need to let go. My daughter Dayspring gave us, she's our oldest, she gave us a run for our money. And as I've said before, she taught me to pray. <laughs> and... You know, I, I literally, I wore uh, the knees out on my, in my britches praying for that, that girl. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were pastoring a church, a small church in the Central Valley, and ready, preparing to come back to the Bay Area to plant a new church. And uh, she was 19, and uh, we actually left her behind. I mean, she didn't want to go with us. And uh, so I arranged for her to live with a family in the church we had been pastoring. So it wasn't that we were abandoning her. I, we took care of her. But we actually left her behind. It was really, really hard for us. But I knew it was one of those moments where the Lord was saying, I got this, but you have got to stop insisting on the outcome. So we, we did. I didn't stop praying for her, but my prayers took on a different, a different perspective. And the way the Lord worked and continues to work in her life, um, I could have never imagined. And so far, just so much greater than I could have uh, scripted. It, this is such an important thing. Dear one, that person you have in your mind today that you're praying for, let go. Let go. The third thing that I see here is keep it up. Keep it up. It says in verse 12, she continued praying. And we can, you know, you can read this story and you can see that this is not likely the first time that she's poured her heart out to God in this way. She was a person who kept it up. There's a story of, of a guy named Elijah um, who was a prophet of God. And uh, the people of Israel were 
very depraved and, and uh, serving uh, false gods, and really in a bad state. And the Lord uh, wanted to get their attention, and so he sent Elijah to tell them this. Elijah showed up and he said, Hey, it's not going to rain until I say so. And for three and a half years, not a drop. Can you imagine? We're going through a drought here in California right now. Three and a half years, not a drop. At the end of that period of time, I don't need to tell you the little story because some of you know, there was this showdown between Elijah and the prophets of, uh, the false prophets, the prophets of Baal. And God demonstrated his power in a miraculous way. And there was a great uh, moment of revival and, and uh, turnaround among the people of Israel. And Elijah says to the king on that occasion, he says, uh, go ahead, get the party ready because there's the sound of abundance of rain. Now notice, there's not a drop in the sky, not a cloud in the sky, not a drop of rain has fallen. It's still crystal clear out there, but he says, get ready, because there's a sound of the abundance of rain. And then he got on his hands and knees in a fetal position and began to pray. And he says to his servant, go check, see what's happening on the horizon. His servant runs out there and he says, well, Elijah, I hate to tell you, but it's just clear as a bell out here. Bright, sunny day. Continues to pray. He does this seven times. On the seventh time, which, you know, I'd have given up long before then, but on the seventh time, he sends his servant out. His servant says, well, I, there's kind of a wisp of a something out there. And Elijah says, run. And it starts to rain. And a downpour. He didn't give up. And what is that about? That's all about faith. Faith uh, says, God, I believe in you and I'm not going to give place to anything else. I believe in you and what you have said. Faith is not trying to manipulate God. It's trying to believe in God and what he has said. I believe in you. Uh, Ten years ago this May, I was in Portland, Oregon to... um, for the occasion of my, the wedding of my son and, and future daughter-in-law. And uh, her name was Dia, is Dia. I love that girl. She's a great gal. And I was uh, officiating in the wedding. And I came to this point in the service where I addressed her specifically and directly. And I said, Dia, you know, I, I don't know you nearly as well as we will as the years unfold and as we... Uh, develop a depth of relationship that I'm so looking forward to. But in another sense, I've known you every day of your life. Because for all of the 22 years of my son's life, I have prayed for you. I didn't know your name. I didn't know what you'd look like. I didn't know where you'd come from. But I knew he would need you. And you are an answer to prayer. Pray and don't give up. Pray and don't give up. The last thing I see here in this passage, and I'm sure there's more, but is resist doubt. Eli comes to her and he basically, he says, stop this mumbling. Stop this foolishness. And dear one, when you begin... Or when you continue to pray 
and to pray um, in faith for that loved one. You will be opposed. And one of the ways the enemy will oppose you is by trying to get you to think that what you're doing is foolish. I have a brother that is really, really severely broken and, um, and far from God in so many ways. And I, you know, I pray for him. But I'll often catch myself hearing that that accusation from the enemy. This is stupid. Give this up. This is foolishness. God, it's been so long. I've prayed so hard in so many years. And, you know, you just want to, you start to kind of tip towards, you know, giving it up. And doubt begins to come. Well, maybe, you know, he's just too far gone. Maybe God can't step into this. Maybe there's nothing God can do. You know? Maybe I'm the only one that's ever had this experience, but I'm just putting it out there. But Hannah, she rears back. And not in a dis- disrespectful way, but, but you have to understand, a woman in this culture, you never spoke back to a man. Ever. Let alone the priest. And he says to her, shut up, stop this foolishness, get out of here. And she says, no. Now she does it in a respectful way. No, my Lord. But she, no. I've got a hold of God and I'm not letting go. This, I'm not, this isn't foolishness. This isn't the babbling of a drunken woman. This is someone who's got a hold of God and I'm not letting go. And in those times when you feel that, that sense of doubt and that accusation from the enemy and that, the, the desire to just give up and forget it, it's time to rise up and say, no. There are times I find myself doing that and saying it out loud, no. God loves my brother. I'm hanging in here for him. The guy who owns this building, his name is Steve Hudson. You can still see on the door on the other side of the building, Hudson Excavation. And by the way, did I say this? That we're, that, that's going to be completed next week, hopefully? Anyway, so we'll be in, in that space that he's been occupying pretty soon. Anyway, he's a nice guy, and, uh, but he doesn't know the Lord. He, he came here when we, opened, when we moved into this uh, building, this part of the building, um, uh, three-plus years ago. So some of you may have met him. Um, but, if, uh, a, I don't know, a year or so ago, um, he turned over the, the part of the business that was being run out of that warehouse area over there uh, to his son. So I met him, and... And uh, he began to be the one that we interacted with with regard to this property. And can I just tell you, I mean, it was really hard. You know, you could just tell the guy had a lot of problems. He would never follow through on anything. He'd make promises, and then he wouldn't come through with them. And you, I think he ended up living over there in that part of the building for a while. You just could tell stuff was not good. And a lot of times I was just really, really frustrated with him. But I felt like the Lord told me to pray for him. Really, God, I just want to be mad at him right now. I don't want to be praying for him. 
But I felt like the Lord said, yeah, you know, he needs, he needs your prayers. And so I started to pray for him. And sometimes throw clenched teeth, but I was praying for him. Uh, and then, you know, we, uh, we leased that, that part of the building and started on the construction project. And um, Steve, the owner of the building, hired a contractor to be the general to oversee the project. And, and that guy's a Christian. And uh, I came here about three weeks ago, four weeks ago now maybe, on a Saturday morning, and I uh, was coming into the building from that side over there just to see if they'd done anything that week, you know. And before I could get the door open, the contractor come walk, came walking out from inside with Steve's son. I thought, wow, that's kind of unusual. What are they doing here? And and how do they know each other and whatnot? And, and the contractor comes up to me. His name is Jim. He says, Randy. And he brings Steve's son over. And he says, Randy, um, I'm here with Steve's son. This is, by the way, I hope you, you guys have had a chance to meet. And I said, yeah, yeah, we've, we've met before. He says, I'm here because he's spending the weekend with me because I'm sharing Jesus with him. <laughs> he says, I'm taking him to a church service tonight and... You know, I'm just, you're, we're hanging together for this weekend because he is hungry for God. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, all right, God, you know, forgive me for my faithlessness. You know, God hears and answers prayers in miraculous, wondrous, marvelous ways. And let's be ones who don't shrink back from this high calling of entering into that relationship with God that allows him to do these amazing things. And can I say to you that this is something you're going to do for your whole life. The issues that you're concerned about, the people you're concerned about right now, those people that are on your mind right now, I know they're important. I know in some, uh, in some cases they're very challenging these will pass and God will move and he will answer prayer and do amazing things and then there'll be more to pray about. It's just the way it is. God, that's how he involves us in what he's doing in the world. So let's don't, let's don't get worn out by this. Let's get ready for this is our job. This is what we do. My daughter-in-law, Dia, I was telling you about earlier, uh, she and my son, Jeremy, most of you know they have not been able to have children. Now they've um, two uh, years ago. In fact, they had uh, two pregnancies end in um, miscarriage in the same year, and one of them was at about 18 weeks. It was a very hard, difficult thing, and they've never been able to figure out why uh, that happened. And so, uh, it's been very challenging for them to want to try to go through that again. You know, but they called us Thursday night, and she's pregnant. And uh, so I'm getting the knee pads out because I got, well, so I guess she's five, month, or five weeks along. I've got eight months of praying that I'm going to do. It's going to be this way for our whole lives. We're going to be praying for the people that we love. Let's do it well. This is recording number 11096 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 23, 2014. 
This is the sixth message in a series titled, Unleashing the Power of Family. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, The Labor of Love. How to Pray for Your Family.